they keep bringing you down? Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view to change the world, to change the past, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today, with episode 486 of the Survival Podcast, it is Thursday, July 29th, 2010. What does that mean? That means that I am probably, right about now, arriving at my little campsite in Tennessee, where I'll be spending the weekend through part of next week before driving 800 miles back down to Dallas. And uh, what that means is I'm speaking to you from Monday, even though it's Thursday, because I preloaded a show or two or three to make sure that you didn't go without me while I was gone, at least not the entire time. Uh, I do believe I'll get a show knocked out uh, between today and tomorrow for not only tomorrow, which was earlier this week, but Friday. So this week should be full. We have the listener uh, contributed show on Monday from a really cool guy. I think you'll tune in Monday to hear about that. Um, and uh, maybe a show or two next week will get missed. I'm not really sure, but I'm going to do what I can to make sure this is a show for here, you here, new ones as often as possible. So today what I'm going to do <clears throat> is I've got a huge backlog of your calls. And even though we'll be doing a call-in Friday for Friday, we're going to do a call-in Thursday today because i got a lot of great calls from you. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead. And knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to take care of you and make sure that the Survival Podcast is here for you Monday through Friday, I'd say 50 weeks out of the year where there's not a single day missed in a week. And uh, sponsor of the day number one, Sawtooth Tactical. All the stuff to live the tactical lifestyle from Magpul magazines to Maxpedition bags and everything in between. And if you tell them, hey, I'm ordering from you because I heard about you on the Survival Podcast, they'll toss in a free goodie, usually a 50-foot hank of parachute cord or something like that. So make sure you let them know you heard about them here. And remember, best way to find our sponsors is go to the survivalpodcast.com and look for their banner in the right-hand margin. Well, next up today is Ready-Made Resources. Ready-Made Resources delivers what it promises, you guys. Ready-Made Resources for all your prepping needs. Everything you can think of from gardening tools to long-term food storage to preparatory tools, uh, you name it, they've got it. And they have one of the most amazing uh, solar catalogs I've ever seen. Uh, I, I try to mention that often, sometimes I forget about it. But really, uh, you should download that PDF solar catalog and take a look at all the not just the stuff you can get from them, but what you can learn about solar systems uh, and power systems in general from that catalog is quite astounding. I would be, uh, I'd actually be willing to buy that catalog for about five to ten dollars. 
uh, I'd be happy to pay for it. That's how valuable the information in it is, and it's yours free just for downloading it. Next up, check out the Survival Podcast Gear Shop. Check out our uh, French Press Tumbler mugs. Those are really cool. I've been enjoying mine a lot. It's brought peace to the Spirico household about my coffee being strong and my wife's coffee being weak. Uh, it's a great-looking product, beautifully branded, beautifully done, high-quality, uh, great price, and it makes a great gift even for the non-prepper, a subtle way to spread, spread the message of prepping. Anybody that loves coffee will love one of these things. Uh, challenge coins and new gear shop coming redesign will be coming soon uh, I'm going to be actually seeing Sis Wolf during my vacation we have some plans for some really cool new stuff that we'll be bringing to the gear shop and I'll be telling you about that when I get back Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You know what that means. You support the show, 20 cents an episode, get a bunch of stuff, big return of investment, done. Let's go ahead and start taking your calls uh, so I can serve you guys better by making sure that you are part of the show. That's why we do these call-in shows. Remember, if you'd like to be featured on the air on one of these shows, the way to do that is to pick up your phone, cell, landline, I don't care, Skype, it can be anything. Push numbers, those numbers are 866 65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Call is toll-free in the United States because we encourage you to think. That's why it's 866-65-THINK. And with that, let's go ahead and take our first question of the day today. Hey, Jack. Good program. Keep with the podcast. Here's my question for you. So you're prepping for hard times even if they don't happen. You wind up getting a divorce. What should you do to maintain your preps or what should be looked at to have things readjusted since basically your entire configuration has suddenly had to change? Good luck. Hope Friday works out. Stay free. Bye. Well, you guys never cease to amaze me with coming up with new things to look at, new questions to ask, and new challenges for me because it's a tough one. Uh, divorce is something I dealt with as a kid of a, of a divorced family, but... Uh, fortunately, I've been blessed, and I, I don't think I'll ever deal with a divorce as a husband. And if that happened to you, and that's why you're asking the question, my heart goes out to you. It is one of the most life-changing, tumultuous events that there could ever be. Maybe it's even something we should talk about preparing for, but I, I don't like to talk about preparing for things that could usually be avoided if we don't think about doing them as an, as, a, as an out in the first place. But there are times when a mar marriage is beyond reconciliation, maybe one partner doesn't have an interest in the reconciliation or is, is you know, seldom is one person completely in the wrong in an argument, but there are certain things that are marriage ending. Uh, and there are certain things that some people will not tolerate and will, will see as marriage ending, and I understand that. And again, anybody in that situation, my heart goes out to you. Um, from a prepping standpoint, well, I guess the first thing you got to do is get through the divorce and remain as whole as possible. Uh, and then, you know, the next question is, are kids involved? When kids are involved, uh, your spouse stops being your spouse after a divorce, but your kids don't stop being your kids. So you need to be prepared to take care of your kids. And in some cases, that means maybe even be prepared to take care of your ex-spouse uh, in a real emergency. So you do have to keep kind of that in step. I think if you are divorced and you do not have any children, uh, once that uh, final piece of paperwork is drawn up and you guys walk away from each other, your obligations, other than what maybe our society deems as an obligation to that other partner, are gone. And let me say that in this day and age, I don't think there's any place for palimony, alimony, or spousal support. I really don't. I think that was for a different time and a different place. And today, uh, if there's no kids involved, you guys should just go on about your own lives and each try to make your life better and try to rebuild and wish that the, 
the uh, the the horror of divorce had never come into your lives. And that's the cleanest way to be. With kids involved, it's a little bit more convoluted. What you need to do, though, once you, once that has happened, is you need to reevaluate what did you come away with, what do you have, and what do you not have. And where are your weaknesses? And you need to begin prepping from that point forward just like any single person would. Uh, in some ways, it's easier because you have less people to look out for and you have only one general in the house to make the decisions about what to do with your resources and time. Um, again, I think it's a terrible thing, but I think for some people it's the right thing. Uh, some people, it just, you look at the marriage at the end and go, how did this ever even start? It didn't seem like there was the compatibility there in the first place. Um, again, I, I really can't speak to this with experience because I haven't fortunately had this experience. All I can tell you is that to me, nothing changes from a standpoint of preparedness, readiness, and, and prepping. And, you're still looking at an assessment of what are your weaknesses and what are your strengths and what do you need and how do you prioritize those things. You maybe have gone from a two-income household to a one-income household without a proportional reduction in expenses. In other words, maybe your expenses go down by a third, but your income goes down by half, and now you have less resources. Or maybe you're paying child support, and I think you should be doing that if, you, if you're ordered to. Uh, I think you should be voluntarily doing that, but it's still a, a matter of what do you have left for yourself. And unfortunately, our court system is so screwed up and so slanted against men in these cases that I've known men that are losing over half their paycheck and don't even really have enough to live on. If that happens to you, um, there is an organization called Equal Rights for Fathers. Look them up. Uh, they can help you out in those situations. I had a guy that worked for me uh, that was just a general laborer back when I did construction. This guy made $8 an hour. That's $320 a week gross. Right. Of course, he had to pay taxes. Uh, he was paying child support of $250 a week. That was $70 less than his gross paycheck. He had, I don't even know how he made it to work. Uh, and uh, the, the lady that I worked for at the time, who was a partner in the company, uh, got him in touch with Equal Rights for Fathers, and they got him into a more proportional, uh, realistic version of, of uh, child support. So that's one of the big things you have to look at. I, I, I really can't say much else about this one other than I feel for anybody in the situation. And the big thing for you to do is once you've come out of this divorce, begin rebuilding your life because it is the end of a chapter of your life. It is not the end of your life. And it is not the end of threats to uh, your happiness. As bad as it may seem while you're going through it, um, you can come out the other side. But it is not the time to let go of redundancy in your life uh, to make sure that whatever you rebuild, you're able to keep. Best I can do. Sorry, I can't do better with that one. Uh, let's go ahead and take another question. Good evening, Mr. Spirko. This is Bill calling from Ohio. I would have said, hi, Jack, but I didn't want to get NORAD and the FAA involved. So we'll leave it the way it started. My question involves monetary issues. I heard you make the statement the other evening that you're encouraging people to get involved in sequestering some of their money in PMs, uh, precious metal. And you made the statement 5 to 10% uh, no more. I have a question for you. With the current state of our economy, I am considering seriously liquidating my IRA and putting that into PMs, which would bump me way out. Well, I'm already way out of your 5 to 10% suggestion. My, suggest my situation is a little unique 
in that I am completely debt-free and have been for 15 years. Um, cars, everything, paid off. And I am gainfully employed and have been for 15 years. Granted, in 2009, I took a 20% pay cut, which is still in effect. However, I do just fine by myself. I have no wife, no children. Uh, it's just me, the dog, and the cat. Um, do you advise against a move like that? Because if the dollar crumbles, I really want to preserve my wealth. I thank you for your analysis and uh, look forward to maybe hearing your answer on the show. Thank you. Bye-bye. First, let me say that my recommendation of 5% to 10% of your wealth into precious metals is the number that I am comfortable with putting my name behind and recommending. What you choose to do in the end is up to you. Please do so with all the information at hand. Now let me tell you why my philosophy is different than this, this gentleman who called in and asked this question and where I see flaws in his logic. See, the, the question is, well, what happens if the dollar crumbles? What happens if we have hyperinflation? Well, my question to you is, what happens if we don't? First of all, I think, uh, much as Mike Gazer has stated, I believe that gold is a good place to get your legs broke right now, at least in the short term. Uh, I believe that gold is overvalued. I believe that a huge portion of the gold market uh, is not just investors. It's also the jewelry market, uh, the, uh, the, the ornamental market, so to speak, and that market is in serious, serious trouble. I believe that a lot of the big money has already laid up gold, and that is going to put downward pressure on buying. So there's people holding. While there's not really a big curtail in the supply, every gold mining operation in the world is going like crazy right now because the metal is high in value, and they want to extract as much as they can while that high value is there. And I believe that gold is simply overvalued. I think silver is a safer play right now. However, either one of them is extremely volatile and subject to a lot of manipulation. And it is very possible for uh, the dollar to be manipulated in a way in which we have, instead of inflation, deflation. The problem with your view is that you're betting on inflation like most of America. And most of America is betting on constant, continuous inflation. Now, you would say that, well, that's always been the case, but it hasn't. Uh, it wasn't the case in the 70s during stagflation. It wasn't the case in the Great Depression where we had periods of extended deflation. Um, it is not always a constant. And inflation requires two things. An increased money supply and a willingness of the population to make the money flow. Right now we're not seeing inflation because the banks are holding the money and I see no indication that they're going to let the money flow anytime soon. And you and I are holding our money because we've been burned and we're in bad situations. Inflation is in check for now. And I think we'll remain in check. And our biggest danger, uh, and what I think may be the catalyst that brings on the double dip in the, in the recession, that brings us into a true depression here, will not be inflation but deflation. What I'm seeing in my, my, my theory of this, um, this false recovery and bust is uh, the beginnings of inflation, which create the illusion of recovery, which run into heavy inflation, which run into curtailed spending, which runs into a second recession, which becomes even worse because people have been wounded and are already scared, with a further further contraction of lending and spending, 
And when that happens, a severe case of deflation, in which case gold gets devalued eventually. Maybe it holds its value, maybe it doesn't. Maybe you have runaway inflation. I don't know. That's the reason I believe in uh, compartmentalization of your investments. Some of your investment is into cash. Some of your investment is into good old-fashioned stocks, yes. Especially cherry-picked uh, profit-earning companies that tend to earn profit even in downturned economies. Some is into fairly safe, short-term bonds. There's a place for these conventional investments. It's just not 100%. There's a place for gold and silver. There's a place for saying, I'm going to buy and pay for a property. Um, you might look into the future at buying additional property because you already have a paid-for house and cars. Uh, your situation is not as unique as you think because you have everything paid for and no debt. Um, you're not really that unique. In, 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 you're unique in America. You're not that unique in the people that listen to the show. The, the, the average person that listens to this show is either in your position or striving to be in your position. And this is what often happens when a person gets into your position. All of a sudden you have something called surplus cash. You start thinking, what do I do with all this stuff? And it becomes easy to just think, I'm going to dump all my money into metals. And if we have hyperinflation and that works out, then you've made a smart move. But only if that happens. So... Let's say you said, in my situation, with no real worries, I want to put 25% in. I would probably tell you I wouldn't do it, but I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm not going to tell you don't. But if you're going to tell me you're going to put 50% or more of your wealth into precious metals, I think you're taking a tremendous gamble, and you have more to lose than you think you do. Now, you might be in a better position than the person that puts 100% of their wealth in stocks. You probably are. But it's still more risk than I'm comfortable with. Do not discount the potential for deflation. I won't say anything more on that because some of the other questions kind of tie into this one. As you guys always seem to do, you guys create overlap and interaction uh, with your questions just in straight order that they come in. So I'll wrap that one for now, and we'll go on and take the next question. Hey, Jack. Hey, we love your show. My wife and I were uh, active duty Army uh, when 9-11 happened, and uh, we were... We've been prepping ever since. Um, we've been looking for some focus for years, and uh, your show provided that. Thank you. Um, my question is, uh, at the bug-out location, would it be feasible or wise to have live traps to trap wild rabbits? At their reproductive rate, uh, you can feed perhaps... Uh, a lot of people are, are, are yourselves quite a bit. And uh, if that's feasible, uh, what type of supplies should you have on hand for cages, feeding? What type of food should you be prepared to grow to feed those rabbits uh, in order to provide meat for the family? Uh, on another note, when I was in Iraq, I, I got to see some really neat uh, Iraqi gardens that were trellised over patios of homes or in home compounds. And just as you you always say, it uh, provided cool uh, and comfort uh, and food. And, and it was absolutely fabulous to see those things. Anyhow, uh, love the show, and I wish you the best. Take care. Bye. Well, first and foremost, I would be completely remiss if I didn't first say to you and your wife, thank you for your service. 
Thank you for doing a hard job that a lot of people in this country don't understand or appreciate. And I'm glad that you're back here safe with us now and uh, able to live your dreams and, and build up a little homestead and uh, start thinking about things like being prepared for the future. And again, thank you so much for your service. Now, so let's see. What you want to do is capture and breed cottontail rabbits. And uh, I, I don't know if that's legal in every state, and I'm sure some states it's illegal because they're regulated as a game animal, even if they're on your own property. And in some other states it probably doesn't mean a hill of beans, and you probably could do it and no one would care. Um, so if you want to try it experimentally, make sure you research what you have to do to stay legal with that. Um, if you want to do it in a shit at the fan scenario where, hey, we've bugged out, uh, end of the world as we know it has occurred in some form or another, hell, that's the least of your worries about whether or not it's illegal to capture and breed a rabbit, and you're basically in a rebuilding mode at that point, you might as well give it a try. Let me give you a couple pieces of advice on this. First of all, um, if you're going to breed rabbits for food, and if you have any choice in the matter at all, you're going to be far better off getting a good breed of meat rabbit for a variety of reasons. One, they'll do better with domestication, and uh, they'll be healthier. But the big thing is they will grow larger faster. Cottontails are quite small even when they're adults, and uh, they uh, they tend to grow slower than a meat variety fryer of rabbit. You'll be able to grow um, a good variety of meat rabbit to edible size in 12 weeks or a little bit more, and at that point it'll be larger than a fully mature cottontail and provide more meat due to that. So if you have any choice and you're going to be breeding rabbits, it's probably a better way to go. Um, cottontails, though, should domesticate well. I've never tried it. I used to build live catch traps like you're talking about as a kid, and it's not real hard. You basically build a box out of plywood, and you put a screen on one end so that they can see through, and on the other end you create a little like channel for a door, and basically you have a channel that goes all the way down one side, and a channel on the other side that goes as high as the door is when it's propped up. Uh, it's hard to explain. You put a little lever so it's like basically you drill a hole in both sides of the box about three-quarters of the way in back toward the screen and put two nails in there so that the thing works like a lever and put a couple uh, staple nails along the side and run a wire back and you just lift your door up, you know, and you bring that piece of wire out till it barely holds the door up and you put some bait in there. And when they go inside, when they hit that uh, floor plate, it pulls that out and the door just slides straight down. It's... A pretty simple way to do it, and I think it's something anybody can figure out if you play around with it a little bit. Uh, it is effective, and it, it does catch them, and I used to do it just for the hell of it. And occasionally, I, we had this old cage for beagles, and I'd throw one or two of them in there and see how they did, and uh, they actually took to it pretty quick. They would start feeding within a day. Uh, within a couple days, I could actually reach in and pick them up like a cat by the back of the neck and hold them without a lot of struggling and fighting. You have to be careful with rabbits. Rabbits can open you up and cut you really bad with scratches. Uh, in fact, bad enough that if they can hit a vein, they can actually be potentially, not likely, but potentially lethal. So you have to use, best to use long sleeves and gloves when dealing with rabbits, even domesticated rabbits, uh, in, in many situations. Uh, so it can be done. I think they would take to the captivity relatively easy. And the advantage with using uh, domesticated cottontails would be they would be used to eating what's in the area. Uh, most of the time when I find rabbits in mountainous areas, we have them up in Arkansas. They're very small, even for a cottontail. They're, they're very small because um, there's not a lot there for them to eat. What do they eat? They eat, you know, they eat a lot of the stuff you would eat. 
lettuce, uh, spinach, stuff like that is good forage for them. Uh, amaranth is great for them. Amaranth is one of the greatest things you could grow for rabbits. Uh, if you have soil that amaranth will grow in large quantities in, uh, the grain and the uh, grain heads and the leaves both, they will eat the crap out of that. Uh, Lucena and moringa as trees are both good edible crops for rabbits. It's going to be difficult to grow enough food for rabbits, though, um, to do 100%. Usually you need to lay up, if you want to do this, you need to lay up some pellets, uh, some pelletized feed, and maybe you need to supplement their feed about 20% with prepared feed. That's pretty much the way Marjorie runs her rabbit breeding operation down there. And with just a few does and a buck, she's able to produce about one rabbit a week. Uh, but these are, again, our meat rabbits that she's doing, not wild rabbits. So I think you would be better off with um, with a domesticated breed of rabbit, a meat rabbit, for this need, if at all possible. In an end-of-the-world situation, every domestic breed started out as a wild breed, and, and work was done to make them better over time. But you will probably run into problems with wild rabbits that you would not run into with domesticated rabbits. One of the alternatives may be to really improve the rabbit habitat around your property and then do selective wild harvest. Give them as many advantages against predators with places to burrow and to nest as possible. Plant food for them and let your wild population manage itself. And if you do that and you give them enough cover, concealment, food, and water in their natural environment, you'll find that you could probably harvest rabbits pretty heavily uh, without really making much of a dent in their population because whether wild or captive, they do breed like, well, rabbits. So best I can do for you on that one. But live catch traps and building them are a great skill to have for a variety of reasons. So experiment with that. And maybe one day I'll build uh, the trap I just described for you, put together a little video and show you how that works. All right, let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Hollis from uh, Wilmington, Delaware. I have a question. Uh, we are looking for more information for, like, urban homesteading and where about to find that and maybe a show done on urban homesteading. Uh, we are probably about maybe four to five miles outside of not a large city but a very small city, and we're trying to turn our .17th of an acre lot into a food-producing machine, so... Thanks, and whatever information you have on this, that would be great. Have a great night. Well, uh, good question. Let me see if, one, I can do another show on homesteading in suburban areas when I get back from vacation. That's a good topic and something we should talk about more. Two, um, I'll give you kind of a brief overview of that, like a two-minute answer uh, here. Before I do that, though, I want to point out that we have talked about this subject in the past, and I've got two episodes that might be right up your alley uh, for more information on that. The first one, and you can find these easily by going to today's show notes. I'll put links. Or you can uh, just plug these uh, episode numbers into the search box or search for you know urban or suburban or something like that in the search box. But it's episode 345, which was an interview with Christopher Nurgis, who I think is a, a great author, uh, has a lot of great insight to suburban homesteading because that's what he does at his place out in California. And uh, the other one... Uh, is actually, real quick, it's all the way back to when I was in the car, episode 215, 
advantages for the suburban survivalist. I think if you listen to those two episodes, it'll do a lot to put you in the right direction. Uh, I'll also tell you guys, I'm a little bit pissed off at these people, but I'm going to give them a plug again anyway, even though I shouldn't. Uh, the Dervais family. I've been trying to get Jules Dervais on this show as a uh, guest, and I got a freaking form letter from these people, from their assistant, telling me that I didn't meet the required criteria for follow-up. Uh, because they're so dadgone busy. I, I think a big part of why those people are busy is because I've talked about them so much on this show and exposed them to thousands of people over and over again. So I was pretty dadgone pissed off at the Dervaises to get a form letter response to a request for an interview saying that I didn't meet the required criteria, which I guess maybe is because my politics differ from theirs a little bit. But despite my anger uh, at being treated like a common random email instead of someone that's done a lot over two and a half years to help these people. Um, I'm going to tell you that if you want to see the way to homestead in the city, check out pathtofreedom.com. I am pissed at them, but they're doing it the right way. And I'm going to blame their, their assistant or whoever's screening their email for that and try not to take it out and hold it against them. But uh, if anybody out there ever gets a chance to talk to Jordan, uh, Jordan Andeves or, uh, or, uh, or Jules or uh, I can't remember the other daughter's name now or their son, uh, please let them know I'd like to have them on this show. And please let them know I really didn't like getting a freaking form letter from them. And if they have any misconceptions about what this show is all about, please inform them uh, that it may not be the end of the world gloom and doom crap that maybe their politics has led them to believe that it is. I'd love to have those folks on the show. That's another good resource for you. Now, just in general, as a suburban uh, homesteader, uh, what you have to do is make the most out of what you have. Uh, 0.17 lot, not very big, so you got to use the sunny spot for sunny things and the shady spot for shady things. You can always do things like have a small, uh, a small little group of chickens or a small little group of rabbits or both. Uh, I would do one at a time, not both at the same time starting out until you get good with one before you do the other. Uh, rabbits are going to be a much better source of meat. The chickens in a small environment are going to be mostly a source of eggs. Chickens will be easier to deal with and easier to get up and running faster. And then maybe you could add rabbits later if you have room for that. Good little garden spot. Make most of your landscaping um, edible. Don't If you have a tree on a, on a small lot like that or two trees, make sure they produce something. If you got a Bradford pear uh, on there, or a, a pistachio, you know, a nutless pistachio tree, or something like that, you, uh, if you had a big lot, I'd say, well, one or two ornamental trees are finally alone. But if you want a homestead on a small lot, cut that crap down, get rid of it, put something on there that's going to produce for you. Um, make use of every bit of space that you have. Build trellises along your fence lines, especially the ones that get most of the sun. Plant things like grapes, kiwis. Go heavy into perennials so you don't have to rely on a vegetable garden for everything. Make sure that you're doing water harvesting. And, and, and one of the beautiful things about small land is that it's easier to set up. It's easier to set it up so that every time you get a rain, you create rain catch and that you can turn a valve and it can water every daggone piece of your property for the next few weeks to come with the rainwater that you've caught without having to use uh, city-provided water. And you get better results with rainwater. It's not just less expensive and not just conserving resources. It's actually better for your plants. Um, so use those episodes. Check out what the Gervaises are doing with Path to Freedom in spite of the fact that they've done pissed me off with their form letter response to me about the show not meeting the required criteria. Whoever came up with that. And if you get a chance to talk to Jules Gervais, let him know that whoever's answering his email is doing him a tremendous disservice to create a public relations incident like that. Um, I don't like to toot my own horn, but I do have a big audience. And... Uh, 
I do a lot to help people when I expose what they're doing on this show and say, hey, check these guys out. It, it, I know for a fact uh, from people that I've, I've talked to after I've done it for them that the results are definitely positive and People need to be careful when they have an assistant or a virtual assistant or somebody like that answering emails for them with form letters. You can do a lot of damage. And uh, in spite of the fact that I basically told this assistant that I wouldn't do anything to plug them anymore, I'm going to tell you, if you want suburban homesteading, there's nobody better at it than the Derveases. Uh Let's go ahead and take another one of your questions. Jack, Travis here from Minneapolis, Minnesota. How can one balance a chemical dependency with survival prepping? What issues would a functional alcoholic have in a disaster situation? Not me, but a guy I know drinks booze daily, but also preps, saves money, and has a strong relationship with his wife. Thanks, Jack. Okay, well, time for an opinion alert. Uh, I usually try to stick to fact on this show as much as I can. Or it's really obvious that it's um, it's an opinion. This I just want to make sure that everybody understands. Everything I'm about to tell you is my opinion of a situation. First of all, if it's a true dependency, I don't think it's very easy to balance it with anything. Um, if you have a dependency that's unnecessary, in other words, a, a, a diabetic is dependent on insulin, and uh, that's just the way that it is. Uh, but it shows the dependency like an addiction. I don't think you can balance that with your life very well at all, and I think you need to really look into it if you have a true dependency. Now, your friend you describe as a functional alcoholic. My question would be, before you worry too much, is he a functional alcoholic or is he a functioning drinker? And you might say, what's the difference? Well, there's plenty of people that drink all the time. But if they get into a situation where they have to go a month or two without drinking, it doesn't affect them at all. Or it affects them very little. Basically, they want to drink the way you would want a hamburger. If that's your friend, other than the fact if he's not drinking so much that he's doing physical damage to his body, it's his own life. Let him live it and stay out of it. If it's actually a dependency, if this is a guy that uh, by noon he hasn't had his first drink of the day, he starts having to have detoxes, he has physical addiction... If this is a guy that uh, if uh, he had to go, let's say, camping with the Boy Scouts for a week and uh, couldn't give it up for a week to go camping as a chaperone with the Boy Scouts, uh, if he had to be on call for work and not drink, he would have a problem uh, getting that done. If he had a physical impairment, uh, a genuine addiction, the inability to not drink, he's got a problem and he needs to take care of it whether he's a prepper or not, whether he's functional or not. But that is a personal choice and that is a personal decision and that is something that you even still need to kind of stay out of it because it could possibly ruin a relationship and you might be wrong you really don't know uh, now if this again if this person like can't function without alcohol then maybe it's time for you and a few other people because it's usually taken better when it's not one person to look at intervention and, and you may have to do that and uh, there are people that they have physical uh, addictive uh, symptoms and they cannot function apart from whatever that chemical dependency is and that person, prepper or not in my view, needs help and they need to beat that addiction because it sooner or later even if they look functional, may very well destroy their lives so that's the best I can do with that um, now, I'm going to tell you right, out, right, right up front there are, there are people out there that you'll look at and say that person's an alcoholic and, you know, bet the guy a hundred bucks to go 30 days without a drink and he'll go 30 days without a drink, without blinking, take your hundred bucks and, 
and uh, go buy a couple cases of beer with it 30 days later. And, uh, again, those people, I think the only time those types of people really have a problem is if they're drinking to the point of intoxication and damage to their body. I usually drink two or three beers a night. I don't know if you call that boozing or not. Some people that are ultra-conservative would. Some people would call it social drinking. I don't know. I know that I don't have a dependency, and I am leery of anybody labeling somebody else with that. If you have one, you probably know it. You might be in denial, but you probably know it. And you need to uh, you need to do something about it, because it's not compatible with living, let alone prepping. Best I can do on it, guys. Let's go ahead and take another one. Um, hi, Jack. Uh, this is Raymond from um, Austin. Uh, if the government and banks try to drag out this recession uh, in order to create some kind of a soft landing for the economy, uh, do you think that the a, a frustrated public could cause a depression by restricting consumption in the way that we reacted to uh, the oil price hikes in 2008 uh, during the summer. Um, and uh, I just uh, was wondering if, that, if you thought that was possible. And uh, love the show. Talk to you later. Bye. So if you've been wondering when I was going to get back to the rest of the things on gold and not overbuying and the effects of deflation, there it is. Uh, like I said, you guys seem to. And these calls are all still from uh, a couple weeks ago when I said, hey, I need some calls. And everybody called, like like 65 people called in in one night. And this is exactly the order that they came in. I haven't skipped anybody's call yet. Um, in fact, I mean, there's one or two calls I haven't used out of this, folks. And the ones, if you if you asked a question that day and it hasn't been answered yet, and you answered asked it early, it's probably because your call quality was badly like over a cell phone or something, because all the questions have been great. Um, but yes, the answer to that question is absolutely. And here's here's what we have to understand about inflation. Everybody talks about it, but very few people that talk about it actually understand inflation. Inflation can only occur when a, a, a certain certain factors come together. And one of those is that, of course, the, the money supply is increased exponentially and the value of money is decreased. So, therefore, it takes more to buy the same thing. But there's still certain economic laws. And these economic laws cannot be violated. One of them is supply and demand. So, if there's no demand for something, regardless of how, um, or if there's little demand for something, regardless of how devalued money is, you can only sell it for so much because people just won't pay for it. Okay, So the, the one is that, that items have to be in demand. So there has to be a functioning economy for inflation to occur. There has to be a desire for goods and services that exceeds uh, the supply to some degree to drive prices with upward pressure. The other thing that happens is that wages have to increase and the money has to be in the hands of people. If the money supply is increased but it's in the hands of banks and it doesn't flow, you don't get inflation. You get stagnation, or you get minor deflation. That's what we have right now. Again, kind of restating the obvious, I guess, there. In the Great Depression, they printed, and they printed, and they printed as we left the gold standard, and they printed, and they printed, and they printed, and they begged inflation to kick in. And inflation, used properly in a fiat economy, can kickstart the economy. It gets it going. Right, Because wages go up, people spend more money, money starts to flow, new vendors come in, take advantage of the opportunity. A slow, steady inflation is the goal, the goal of a fiat-based economy, 
Understand that. That's what they want. The Federal Reserve does not want deflation, and they don't want stagnation. They want slow, steady, dependable inflation. Okay? That's the goal. Now, what happens is, at some point, if enough people are unemployed and don't have money, no matter what you do, you can't get it going again. Once inflation uh, stops, it halts, you start to go the other way. Well, the only thing the Fed can do to try to get it going is cut the interest rates and cut it and cut it and cut it until they get to zero, right? That's where we're at. We might as well, the money is free right now, as free as it's ever been in the United States of America to borrow money, the lowest interest rates in history. And what does that, what has that done? Nothing. Because nobody's borrowing or spending. People have curtailed their spending. Now, we're starting to see some signs of recovery in the economy here and there. Some rebuilding. The United States economy, despite our woes, is one of the most resilient in the world. We have an engineering, industrious, hardworking, entrepreneurial people that haven't been totally destroyed by government yet. People that create jobs, that create things. And we're trying and we're fighting and we're trying to get back up. And with a little bit of inflation, we can have a pseudo-recovery. But what happens... What happens if instead of letting everything flush itself out, every all the all the powers that be that don't want the pain keep trying to stave it off, and we prolong this thing? And what happens if we get a bubble of recovery that doesn't last long? And what happens if if the stock market goes back down to seven thousand and everybody freaks out and goes, oh, it's really it's back and it's worse than ever? You know, it's like the person that, you know, I remember my nephew when he was just a little guy. He was like four years old, broke his arm. And he was so brave, you know. And he went to the doctor and he was so brave. And the doctor said it. And he was so brave. And it didn't heal right. The doctor had to break his arm again and reset it. And then it was too much. And I got it. My heart went out to the kid. I just felt so bad. And he finally got out of the cast and he was finally healed. And you know what happened to him? He fell and he broke the same arm in the same damn place again. And he screamed. He tried to hide that it was broken. He didn't want his dad to know. All he wanted was to not go back to the doctor. Because he'd already been through it once. He made it through. He was okay. But the second time was too much to bear. If we have a double dip recession. Where this recession appears to have gone away and wane and comes back. That's how the American people are going to react to it. You think they've contracted spending. You wait. You think they've saved money and not spent money. You wait. You think they've sat with their hands under their ass and stopped blowing money. You wait. You think they've gotten rid of credit cards. You wait. You see what happens if this double dip comes. And that's why we can always see the potential for the economic woes to come either from deflation or inflation. And that's why we don't ever bet on one to the exclusion of the other. We accept the fact that long-term inflation is a constant goal of the Federal Reserve and our government, and therefore we must plan for it to occur. We accept the fact that sooner or later they can lose control of it, it can run away, so we must plan for hyperinflation. We understand that economies can stagnate and go nowhere, so we plan for stagnation. And we have to understand that we can have a complete reverse failure that can revert into deflation, so we must plan for all four of those. And the way to do that is to live life debt-free, to have an abundance of surplus cash 
to have some hedge, like precious metals, to own property outright, to have income-producing or supply-producing assets. You do those five things as pillars to build your life around, like a five-pillared structure, you know, like a pyramid. You build on those tenets, and then you can deal with any of the occurrences. But that's the reality. We can have stagnation, deflation, continuous constant inflation, or runaway inflation. Any of those can occur. And here's the other side of this. I'm going to hold off, because what do you hear uh, one of the later questions about this? Uh, the same kind of topic. I almost went in and answered that. I'm going to hold off. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hey there, Jack. This is Gary in Will County, Illinois. found your podcast a couple, three weeks ago. And it certainly seems as though some of the times when I think about something during the day, I'll find it as a subject uh, on your podcast later that night. My question is about hyperinflation. Uh, it seems uh, reasonable that under severe hyperinflation, you'd be able to pay off your 30-year fixed mortgage for about the price of a half a case of soup. Or would banks stop taking payments under such currency crisis? And if I owned my home before hyperinflation, would I own it after? Thank you very much, man. I've been wondering about that for a long time. Talk to you later. I told you, folks. You guys are so in sync, it's scary. And those two calls did come in back to back. There was nothing in between them. Um, it's, it's almost freaky the way you guys are in sync with each other and making calls at the same time. They came in about five minutes apart uh, when I looked at the timestamp on the uh, on the attachments that came in from call eight. Um, Interesting question. Let's start out with uh, what I was about to say. The only way we get hyperinflation is if, if wages increase commensurate with prices. There's a, there's a, a, because of supply and demand, prices can only go up as high as there is a buyer. Once the buyers begin to contract, the price has to contract to find a buyer. We see this every day in the stock market. Most people don't even get how the stock market works. I want to buy one share of Walmart for $55, right? I would never buy one, but let's just use that as an example. Somebody wants to sell a share of Walmart for $65. All it comes down to is, will anybody pay $65? If no one will pay $65, the price goes to, say, $64. It really goes down to, you know, 64 four and seven eighths. But let's just say right down to sixty four. Will anybody pay sixty four? Nope. Will anybody pay sixty three? Nope. Will anybody pay sixty one? Sixty? Fifty eight? Fifty nine? Fifty seven? Fifty seven? Fifty seven going once. Fifty seven. Somebody buys it at fifty seven. I don't get to buy it for fifty five. And I can wait and see if the price will come down, but as long as people keep buying at fifty seven, I never get to buy for fifty five. I have two choices. I don't buy or I go up to fifty seven. Now no one buys at fifty seven. No one buys at fifty five. It goes down, and I go, well, now it's dropping. I don't want it for 55. It came down too fast. Uh, I think that this is good, and I back off. I say, now I'm bidding 50. 54, does anybody buy it? 53, 52, 51. Somebody buys it, I can either come up and buy it at 51 too, like the market is, or I can hold tight at 50 and wait. If it starts going up, I maybe lose my opportunity to buy. Everything in our society works that way. The reason Apple can sell an iTouch for a certain, you know, $200 is because somebody's willing to buy it. Take away the money and nobody has the $200 to buy it, and they either have to not build it or sell it for less. Either way, they have to employ less people, which puts further suppression down on wages. So the hyperinflation thing, the way you're thinking about it, where you can buy a house for the price of a bowl of soup if you already have the mortgage on it, is 
highly unlikely to happen in a short, quick burst over a year or two or three. This is something that happens and erodes over time. Now, we can look at what a house sold for in 1960 and see the effects of inflation. We can look at what a house sold for in 1985. And even with the current real estate, we can look at what it sold for 1990. And most houses that were bought in 1990 could be bought for a fraction of what they would buy them for in uh, 2010, 20 years later. Even with the contraction, even with the bubble in the middle, uh, houses cost more today than they did 20 years ago. So... We can see the inflation effect on housing. If it did happen, if it just ran away, um, as long as you made enough money, as long as your wage went up, as long as you weren't left behind of the inflation curve, okay, and that's another thing that happens with inflation. People get left behind. You know, the majority of society has their wages go up 50% over five years, let's say, and yours goes up 10. It doesn't really do you a lot of good then that you're holding a mortgage. Your wages have to go up. If your wages go up, if if it happened like Zimbabwe, if the, the nightmare scenario occurred, uh, the bank would have no 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 um, no choice but to accept your payments. If all of a sudden you started making forty thousand dollars a month, right, forty thousand a month, but it bought what four thousand did, but you owed eighty on your house and you could pay your house off in three payments, and that's what you wanted to do, the bank would have to take the payments. It wouldn't work out as good as you think it would, though. There would be major, major problems beyond your house payment. Probably the last thing that you'd be worried about in that scenario. This is what I, I don't like when I get this question, because I hear financial advisors, and a lot of people give this advice, and even people I respect give this advice. Go ahead and buy a house, because inflation will reward your mortgage eventually. You got a 30-year mortgage, Jack just said 20 years, I mean, you know. And I look, and it, it does work in some scenarios, if you buy smart. My father-in-law has a house payment of $248. He has 13 years left on his mortgage. And he said, should I pay it off? And it was like thirty-eight grand to pay it off. And he doesn't have a lot of money. He has some money, but not a lot of money. And he's also a pretty old guy. And I said, I think you'll beat them by dying, Fred. And I hated to put it that way, but I, you know, I don't think he'll be here for 13 more years. Um, if he is, great. But $248, including your property taxes, keep the cash because you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, so it does work for some people, but it doesn't mean you can be stupid and buy what you can't afford today and hope it works out. And that's what got a lot of people into this problem was that type of thinking. But you're, you're the crux of your question. If hyperinflation hit and you had the ability to pay off your mortgage, would you still own your house? Absolutely. Um, is it likely to work out that way? No. Uh, you have a better chance of winning the lottery than that happening that way. I really believe that. I talked to a guy recently. He said, I'm just buying 10-ounce silver bars, and one day I'll be able to just walk down and buy a house of my dreams for a few silver bars. Um, again, I'm big on precious metals. I'm big on portfolio diversification. I'm big on not putting all your money in the stock and bonds. I'm big on I'm big against the stupid way to buy and hold, which is just let it work itself out and be well diversified. I think that's terrible advice. I think it's burned a lot of people in the ass. But I'm also a realist when it comes to the laws of money and economics. And this belief that some people have that the dollar will be devalued to nothing overnight, I think is uh, is vastly Um, vastly overplayed, and I don't think you should buy into it. 
and you can think about it, it's already happened in time. When I say the dollar will be devalued, there'll be a time when a dollar buys with 10 cents buys right now. And if that happens in a week, that's terrible inflation. If it happens over 50 years or 10 years, it's par for the course. And it's the way things have always been. And as long as they can keep it happening at that speed, it actually works out for the fiat, the fiat controllers. Um, can it last forever? No. When is it going to go? I don't know. Should you bet on it going? No. You know, should you bet on it just going, the dollar going bankrupt? No. You should be prepared for it to last for 50 years, and you should be prepared for it to last for 50 days. You have to be prepared all the way around because we don't know what's going to happen and we don't know what the people that are manipulating the money are going to decide to do. We can look, we can infer, we can guess, but in the end, it's not in our control. Our control is how we react to it. And doing anything, betting on inflation, betting on deflation exclusively to the exclusion of the other, is like going into the roulette wheel and putting all your money on double zeros. Sure, if you win, it pays off 37 to 1. But there's a lot of other spots on that board that can come up where you're going to lose. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Andy in Minnesota. And right now it's really nice out here, but in the winter it's not really going to be so nice out. And me and I think most other people here are completely dependent on natural gas coming out of the, the pipes and into our furnace so that our houses don't freeze solid. So... I was wondering uh, what advice you have me and some other cold weather preppers, maybe that um, some things that we could do to kind of shore up that dependency and also maybe discuss some alternative methods of heating. Thanks. Well, first again, I want to point out the uh, the value of using the search tool at the survivalpodcast.com. Not there's anything wrong with this question. I think it's a great question. It's what's on the air. And I'm not saying not to ask it. I'm just saying that this is a good opportunity for everybody to learn. If you go to the survivalpodcast.com and search for heating and uh, look through the results, maybe one or two pages, you'll find a great show called uh, Six Options for Alternative Heating, episode 129. I'll put a link in today's show notes to expand on this subject. But uh, that's another example of how you can find information from prior shows. Again, you might pull up 20 episodes and only two may be worth really listening to, but by scanning the show notes, you'll be able to find, and looking at the titles alone, you'll be able to find the ones that are best suited for what you're asking. Let's start out with natural gas coming through pipes in the ground. Here's the good news. It is probably the most reliable energy source that you can depend on a utility for. Uh, it has almost an infinite storage life. It is in huge supply. Uh, people are worried about peak oil. Nobody's really worried about peak natural gas right now. We have natural gas being drilled and, and pulled out of the ground all over the world and all over the United States, and we don't have to deep water drill on the ocean floor to get our hands on it. They're pumping gas as we speak out from underneath my house. Uh, so there is a tremendous reserve of natural gas in the United States. Some people don't like that it's being extracted. There's environmental concerns. Um, there were some ways they were doing natural gas drilling 10 years ago, uh, especially in some more rural, remote areas that caused some problems. A lot of the, the uh, and don't think that a, a company drilling for gas wants to create an environmental catastrophe. It's the worst thing in the world for them. Uh, it costs them billions of dollars. So they've made a lot of strides with avoiding that stuff going forward into the future. So there's a reliable, continuous supply that will last over 150 years or probably more because we don't even know how much of it's really available yet. The global warming people could scream all they want. 
I'm not worried about global warming because of natural gas. So um, it's as reliable as anything you're going to get from a utility. Even if you have an ice storm and poles are down and streets are blocked, odds are the natural gas is still going to come out and you're still going to be able to run your furnace, so that's a good thing. The bad thing is you got to pay somebody for it, and there is still potential for systemic failure. Um, there's pot potential that's outside of um, major catastrophe. Uh, people do things with backhoes sometimes that blow holes in gas lines that have to shut service off. If that just happens to correspond with a cold day, you could be without gas heat. In an end-of-the-world-as-we-know-it scenario, um, there could be disruptions to supply lines uh, that, that cause this to happen. Again, if you want something with redundancy, natural gas is as redundant as any utility. I think it's more redundant than water. But you still probably want some alternative options. Good solid kerosene heating is, is a great one. Kerosene stores for years and years with a little bit of st stable in it. Um, it's, uh, it's a great... Uh, alternative heating source, especially just to heat a room or two. Most kerosene heaters have good technology that keeps them from being dangerous. You do want to have CO2 detectors in your house if you're using kerosene heating, but we used it a lot as a supplement in Pennsylvania. It worked well. I used it uh, as, a, as a kid. We used it in Pennsylvania. We used it when we were uh, living there uh, to help supplement our electric heat bills, and it was great. Uh, you can always look at putting in Uh, some liquid propane heating elements as well. In addition to your natural gas, put it in a great big propane tank, and you've got a tremendous amount of redundancy there. I will probably do that in Arkansas. Uh, Wood-burning fireplaces are wonderful. If you get yourself a good uh, uh, air circulation tool to get air to circulate uh, and make better efficient use of that wood-burning fireplace, that'll work. Otherwise, without that, a wood-burning fireplace pretty much heats the room it's in and pretty much draws and makes air, like, it'll actually make your other rooms colder if there's no other source of heat because it pulls air out of those rooms, heats the room that it's in, and actually cools external rooms. Mythbusters even checked that and found that to be so. Uh, so those are some basic uh, things that you can do. But, again, if you check uh, the show uh, that I just mentioned, and I'll put a link in today's show notes, you'll get six great options for that. But, again, I want you to feel... Let me put it to you this way. If you're prioritizing the things to prep for losing, uh, prep to lose your electricity and your water first before your natural gas. It, it, again, is probably the most redundant utility that we have. Doesn't mean it can't go away, but it goes further down the list, um, especially if you have just a little bit of mitigation to things like what we call backhoe fade in the telecommunications world. That's your biggest threat to your gas line is something actually cutting or breaking a line. Uh, the, the, the fact that any type of uh, natural disaster is going to shut it down is highly, highly unlikely simply due to the consequences of a line break in the first place. There's a tremendous amount of, uh, of redundancy built into protecting those lines. And... Um, There's a tremendous distribution system in place. So uh, there you go. Best I can do on that. Check out the other episode. Let's take another uh, question. Hi, Jack. Jim from Holland, Michigan here. I wonder if there's any websites, blogs, or news groups that you regularly follow to stay abreast of current events. It's so easy to waste hours browsing the net, reading about the going on in the world, most of which isn't really important whether we know it or not. 
Um, love your show. If the shit ever really did hit the fan, then you can take satisfaction in knowing that you've made those hard times quite a bit easier for a lot of people. Take care. Well, as far as blogs go, there's probably not a better blog to keep an eye on than James Rawls' blog, uh, survivalblog.com. I know sometimes I mention uh, Rawls, and, and you might think that I don't like him or something. I actually like him an awful lot, and I think he's done a tremendous amount for the prepper movement. I disagree with his angle on some things. Uh, his, uh, his religious stance, I think, pulls more pe pushes more people out than pulls more people in. Uh, as though somehow if you are a Christian, you're better than everybody else. That's the way, I don't know if that's what he means. It's how he comes off. And um, I try to keep my message devoid of any religious connotations. And I think, if anything, that hurts his message because there's people that just, there's Christians that that's offensive to. Uh, there's plenty of them. Um, and I'll just leave it at that. Uh, but as far as like being in touch with things, if anything goes on, it's going to pop up on his blog. I probably read his blog about three or four times a month. I just scan through it and see if there's anything that I missed. My thing is, I'm lucky. I, I don't have to rely on um, uh, you know news groups or anything because I have you guys constantly emailing me everything that goes on, and I try to take most of it that's relevant and get it on the show for you guys so that you can use the show as a good source of information. But I try not to go too much into anything that's too topical, too current events, because I like the shows to be timeless. I like the fact that most of my shows you could download from a year ago and listen to today. They'd still apply as much today as they did back then. few things went into some topical situations, but most of them are universal. So my show's not really the best answer to that. And if you're a listener, that's why you've asked the question. You know that. Um, what I like to do is take my hot-button issues, like pandemic, uh, like food shortages and things like that, and I create alerts with Google Alerts. I go to Google News, I do a search, I keep refining the search until I find exactly the type of stories and content I'm looking for. I sort those results by time, and then I set up an email alert that every time there's new stories, Google sends me an email with that, and that lets me basically shortcut going and running a search every day to see if it's out there. I find that more productive for my use than any news group or blog or anything like that. And I would stay in touch with our forum, the Survival Podcast Forum, uh, especially once you have a, a, enough posts to get into some of the more topical boards where more debates happen. Uh, if it's something going on, you're going to see it in Patriotism and the New Revolution. That's one of the boards that gets unlocked for you once you've been around and made enough posts. People that want to know why we keep certain boards just invisible to people until they have a certain number of posts, because we had plenty of people who would come into the forum, uh, didn't know the show from Adam, didn't know anything about the show or its community, and come in and start terrorizing the board with, uh, with a debate and, and anger and disrespect. And it was a solution, and it's been a good solution. So uh, get involved with the forum. Start making a few posts a day, and before you know it, those types of boards will open up to you. And uh, we don't apologize for that. We just explain it. And if you don't like the explanation, I'm sorry. Um, that's my primary method, though, is monitoring Google News Search uh, through alerts. I'm not really in any uh, groups or anybody else's forum or real active on anybody else's blog, and I'll tell you why. Because... I have never, most people that are running something like that have a certain community and business model that they're building. And it's very important for me, for the integrity of my community, that I never look like I'm going into somebody else's forum. A great forum, for instance, Survivalist Boards, uh, run by a guy named Kevin. It's a great forum. Great forum. I used to post in it. I don't post in it anymore. Why? 
That's Kevin's forum. And I don't want to feel like I'm trying to attract his forum members to my show with kind of like a bait and switch. If they find it, they like it, great. Totally compatible with each other. But I try to stay out of that interaction uh, outside of the Survival Podcast community due to what I see as a conflict of interest, if that makes sense. So my best advice for you, find the... uh, Find the topics you're most interested in and set up things like Google Alerts for that. But James Rawls' blog is good. Um, there's also another great blog uh, called thesurvivalistblog.net by M.D. Creekmore. It is, again, thesurvivalistblog.net. I like his blog a lot. I like what he's doing. He's a good source of information. But as far as news groups and, and other forums, I've pretty much stayed out of that. So... Um, I'm going to recommend my own forum. I know that might sound self-serving, but it's completely the opposite. I'm simply not what we call in the uh, or the internet marketing. Uh, the internet marketing industry is a forum pirate or a blog pirate. I'm not someone that uses somebody else's community to try to fish people into my own. I'll let people find it for themselves and decide if it's right for them and participate at whatever level they are most comfortable with. Uh, let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. I was wondering if you could give me any ideas on how to use chicken manure the best way. Um, I've heard it's too hot to put directly on your garden, and I've tried composting it, and it kind of turns into a sludge. So if you have any ideas, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks. This is Mary. Bye. Well, Mary, finishing up today with a little bit of humor, you realized that you couldn't use chicken poo, and you tried to... uh compost it and you made chicken poo goo Um, you do compost chicken manure to break it down and make it where it's not too hot too high in nitrogen where it won't burn plants that's a good thing you don't generally compost it all by itself alone that's where you get chicken poo goo Um, what you want to do is you want to add chicken manure to your compost to typical composting with uh, things like leaves and grass clippings and vegetable matter from leftovers from dinner. That's how you compost chicken manure. That's one way to do it. If you pile chicken manure into nothing but a big pile and just leave it sit there, it'll make a go. And it's uh, eventually it'll work itself out, but it's going to be a very anaerobic breakdown, meaning there's not a lot of, uh, of uh oxygen able to get into the internal workings and to cause it to break down in a really reasonable rate of speed and it breaks down anaerobically which is bacterially and that's when you get a goo and a stink uh, if you were to incorporate other matter in with it like uh, browns like leaves and greens like uh, tr- trimmings and leftovers from scrap and you put that into a compost pile or compost bin you're going to get a very good contribution of nitrogen by the chicken manure you're going to get a very good end product and you can do it high in chicken manure or low in chicken manure but you can't do it as just chicken manure by itself and expect to get a reasonable quick and usable uh, uh, product it's just not going to work out as well The other way that it can be done is if chickens are allowed to manure an area uh, where the manure is largely spread out and becomes part of the soil and gets scratched in and then moved to another area and it's just allowed to set in place and you give it a little bit of time, it'll actually break down and become uh, good fertile soil very quickly that way because it's not all piled up in one location. 
Uh, you don't want to plant it in immediately, but even after, let's say, a few months, if you do some chicken tractoring, for instance, you let chickens have run uh, over a bed where you're not growing anything. And you let them weed it out and clean out the pests and manure their little brains out all in that bed. And then you move that tractor, wait a few weeks and plant there. That actually works out pretty well. You really probably want to wait a couple months, but uh, you'd be surprised at how quick you can plant in that area because the manure spread out and it's been incorporated in all of the other activity that's going on in active soil. But your best bet, if you're actually collecting manure from a coop or something like that, is going to be adding the manure to compost that uses more than just the chicken manure. With that, you're going to get turbocharged compost, great results, extremely rich organic matter, and you're going to have great results. With that, I'll go ahead and wrap up. Again, folks, uh, by now I'm probably somewhere damn close to, if not... Uh, at my camping location in northern Tennessee. I won't tell you exactly where I'm at, but uh, I'm up in near a place called Huntsville. I'll just leave it to, to that. Uh, almost to Virginia. And uh, hanging out up there, but I wanted to make sure you guys had a show. So I'm enjoying my vacation. I hope you enjoy your Thursday. I hope the Survival Podcast has helped you out uh, a little bit today. Maybe a question or two that some of these folks had you had as well. Maybe you've got a better understanding of something. Uh, that's my goal every day, to make sure that I'm helping you learn just one or two more things. If you spend an hour with me and you get some entertainment and some education and you take away one or two things from that that are going to improve your life, and I do that for you every day, then I'm meeting my goal. That's my goal is to make America as independent and free and liberty-based and as non-dependent as we can possibly be. And for that matter, not just America, but anyone anywhere in the world that's listening, that's my goal for you as well. On that note, signing off from vacation today, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you live that better life if times get tough or even later. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.